But again, I want to pull some of the material today from this book by J. Warner Wallace. And as we do so, it will be helpful to maybe answer some of the kinds of ask Kirby questions I receive. For example, I've had some people say, okay, we know that as we uh, certainly have our Bibles, we know the most about Jesus by reading the Bible. But are there any evidences of Jesus apart from the Bible? And the answer is yes. Matter of fact, on uh, the Probe website, uh, one of the perennially popular articles is one that we produced years ago on all of the secular references to Jesus by Tacitus, Pliny, Suetonius, others, you know, and uh, later writers. And so that is the case. Some people have asked the question, why did Jesus come when he did? And I think this today might answer that question for you. But part of what we're going to be doing is taking the material from J. Warner Wallace. And if you're not familiar with him, he is a man that was on Dateline and was best known for solving these cold case uh, stories. And so we tend not to watch the Dateline stories, but if you ever have, you probably have seen him before. And so he uses an example from his life in which they were able to prosecute and actually uh, sentence an individual whose wife disappeared, and his name is Steve Hayes, and his wife Tammy disappeared, and it was a cold case, and nobody had really collected the evidence for it because at the time it was listed as a disappearance. Everybody in the police force eventually concluded that it was a murder, but they did not have a crime scene. They did not have a body. And so how can you solve a cold case like that? Um, spoiler alert, if you get near the end of the book, he, they solved the case. Uh, they convict him, and later on he admits where her body was. But when there's not enough evidence, the question that was being asked at the time is, well, how do we solve this case if we don't have a body, we don't have a crime scene and everything else. And so his theory was, and by the way, this book is over 300 pages long and it's almost a, that many pay, uh, pages of diagrams. He's quite an artist. And he says it's the fuse and the fallout that would identify the felon. What do we mean by that? Well, one day he drew a diagram like this and said, look, if you are thinking about an explosion, and you can kind of see that right here, this explosion, I guess this isn't going to work so well, but there it is, right there, is going to take place. But before that, there's a fuse, and then eventually when it explodes, you have the fallout. And so his argument was very simple, that the fuse and the fallout will identify the felon. And that is what he does. So he kind of has a parallel story where he takes you through the story of Steve Hayes and shows how eventually they were having a conviction based upon this idea of a fuse and a fallout. And so then that follows that with the idea that when you have a longer fuse, you'll have a greater fallout. And examples he uses, for example, you know, if you have somebody shoplifts, well, they doesn't need a lot of planning. I just maybe instantaneously decide to grab and go. But if it's a burglary, that's going to take some planning. If it's a murder, and I'm not recommending this in the class, it takes even more planning, okay? And so as a result, there's a longer fuse and there's a fallout. Well, that is the example he uses so that he eventually got a conviction of Steve Hayes and the murder of his wife. And then he now says, well, let's look at a different explosion and that is Jesus Christ. And so in some respects, I'm going to give you some things that might be helpful if you're talking to a person who says, well, okay, you believe in Jesus, 
Um, but you believe in Jesus because of the Bible. But I don't believe the Bible, so do you really have any arguments you can make for Jesus apart from the Bible? Well, yes, we can. But what he does is, even in his own investigation, he did not become a Christian till the mid-30s. So again, he then actually got involved in investigating who Jesus was because he was really skeptical. And this is a good example, uh, which many of us have had before. Um, I can think of many of the people that now are into apologetics, uh, like Lee Strobel, whose wife went to church and then they started doing an investigation. So whether it's Lee Strobel, whether it's J. Warner Wallace, it's those wives that go off to church and they say, OK, I'm going to disprove this for you. And then they end up becoming Christians. And so this is the case. But he did wonder at the time, would it be possible to make the case for Jesus apart from the Bible? Obviously, we know the most about Jesus from the Bible. But even if there was no Bible, he says, and no report in the Gospels, um, you can use the same technique because of the fuse and the fallout. And he says, you know, one simple one is that we move from B.C. to A.D., and then he points out that now they say, well, B.C.E., before the common era, uh, then after the common era. And you always say, well, what was it to change that? Because even our calendars are based upon this. So what we're going to do is work our way through this idea of three chapters that look at, if you will, the fuse. What happened before Jesus came? And again, I did not know O.S. Hawkins was going to use Jeremiah chapter 1, what happened before you were born. So this is going to be the same thing. What happened before Jesus came, and then what of the fallout after Jesus came? And I think you're going to find it very easy to follow. If you're taking some notes, we put those down there. One of the chapters is about this idea of what he calls a cultural fuse. And that is, you have to understand that there was a period of time in which if Jesus had come, given the language we had then, we might not have been able to have the dissemination of the gospel we take for granted now. He starts by talking about, you know, at about 3500 B.C., you had pictographs, you then had cuneiform, uh, but eventually you had the Egyptians, and he talks about this, pressing strips of papyrus at right angles. This allowed you to have writing instruments, and now because you had papyrus, these could travel much easier than clay tablets. Well, then over time, you still needed an alphabet, and so the adds to that, the Phoenicians had an alphabet, which was used, and that was dated at about uh, 1000 B.C. And then you have, by the time Jesus comes, not only have you had the Greek language, but the, you now have the Romans that adopted it, but even then the Etruscans, who were taken over by the Romans, created what today would be our alphabet, and that ultimately ended up in being what is called Koinonia Greek. And that became the language of the region now, because even Jewish people, when they would speak to Gentiles, would use Greek. And, of course, our New Testament is written in the Greek. And so he points out that, first of all, you had to almost get to that point in time where if the message of Jesus was going to be expended and distributed as far and wide, you needed language well, you needed alphabet, you needed a language, you needed one that would have been universally understood. And so this sort of narrows the time, if you think about it, when Jesus might have come. Well, that was just one of the points here. 
I could take you through hours going through this. It's a 300-page book, but I'm going to keep it moving pretty quickly because he points out something else. When you start looking at the time period for having a language, you also had a time when much of the world was dominated by the Egyptians. Then later the Persians came in, the Greeks, you know, Alexander the Great. But by the time you got to the Roman Empire, you have a number of things that actually made it possible for the uh, distribution of the gospel. Not the least of which was Pax Romana. There were not wars being fought at the time because all of that was being suppressed by the Romans. You also also had the Roman road and the bridges. Uh, those roads, very significant, were developed initially so that you could move troops and armor back and forth, but the Roman road essentially was how the gospel was presented. By the way, Ian's just back from Greece. He can talk about some of the roads that he saw there, and it's fascinating the one time I've been in Greece to see the roads that you know, go all the way from Athens all the way to Corinth, all the way to Philippi, and to recognize, okay, on this road, this is where Paul was, this is where uh, he runs into different individuals and all of that, that allowed for the quick dissemination of the gospel. You also have, of course, the fact that at that period of time, now documents and papyrus were readily circulated. So all of that allowed for the dissemination of the gospel. And then one other interesting thing. It was a period in which originally there was a fair amount of toleration by the Roman Empire. Because as Rome was able to conquer so many other particular um, groups and civilizations, uh, the decision oftentimes was, well, we'll let them worship their gods as long as they at least pay tribute to the Roman gods. But there was one impediment to all that, and that were the Jews. They were not going to worship those. And so they made kind of an exception to allow those people in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and that area uh, to have their own gods. And so there was initially, for almost about 30 years, a real toleration first of the Jews, and then even a toleration of this cult at first called Christianity, they may have tolerated it in part because they thought, well, maybe this Christian cult would eventually eliminate the Jews. And so by the time you get to Nero, then you have this incredible persecution, which he talks about as well. But all of these, in, if you will, the cultural fuse were very significant in what happened before Jesus shows up. Let's take the next one then, because now we want to look at something else. Um, was Jesus merely a copycat savior? And so this is what you call the spiritual fuse. And I've talked about this in the class before, but it's worth mentioning again. If you go out on the, the Facebook areas and the Internet and other places, there will people say, well, really what you have in the Bible here is this person constructed in Jesus. There really wasn't a Jesus person, but they just took bits and pieces of some of these other deities like Apollos, like Mithras, like uh, Dionysus or whatever it might be, Osiris. And so that is the case. And so they, the idea is that Jesus was a myth. By the way, there's no serious historical scholar or theologian that really buys that, but these myths circulate on the Internet all the time. But that's what then J. Warner Wallace does. Let's look at these other particular ideas of some of the attributes of these others that were seen as maybe myths. And interestingly enough, one of the challenges for that is that in most places, ancient people would adopt the gods of their parents. 
And yet when Christianity developed, they not only rejected the Roman gods, they also rejected Judaism. And so that stands out as a striking difference. But what he does go through, and I can show this charts because it's pretty detailed, he looks at the characteristics of different uh, so-called ancient deities. And I've mentioned a few of those already. Osiris, the god in Egypt, Dionysus and the Greeks, and Apollos, and all of these, and Mithras, uh, and the Babylonians and all that. And he came up with about 15 different characteristics that at least one or two of them had. Puts them on a chart all the way across. And points out that some have, you know, maybe seven or eight. Some have three. But if you go all the way across, there's only one individual in history that's recorded that had all 15 of those characteristics. And that's Jesus. Then he goes back and says, now let's look at some of these heroes. Let's look at Moses. Let's look at Jonah. Let's look at Joseph. Let's look at some of these others, David. And we look at some of the descriptions of them. And again, we see each one of them have certain characteristics. But again, the only one that has all of those is Jesus. In other words, Jesus is the culmination of all these characteristics and all of these descriptions. And so that becomes, if you will, the spiritual fuse that we can use. Then, finally, we'll want to look at one more fuse, and that is the prophecy fuse. And that is very well done. That's worth the price of the book as well. Because he's answered another question I've always had. If you've heard me talk about in the past, uh, wait, matter of fact, a couple weeks ago, we talked about messianic prophecy. And I have the little book on messianic prophecy. I've used that to say this would be a good way to, in many cases, use this as an evangelistic tool to talk to your Jewish friends. And if you've gone out and tried to do that, you feel like you might as well be talking to the wall because it doesn't seem to connect. Because they sort of look at that and go, well, I just don't see Jesus in these prophecies. Matter of fact, I'm not even sure all of those were messianic prophecies. And J. Warner Wallace points out something that when you collect evidence, there are evidence, clear evidence and then there's cloaked evidence. And he uses that to say that really there's two kinds of prophecy. There's clear prophecy and there's cloak prophecy. What does he mean by that? Clear prophecies point to the person of interest from the onset. I'd have to say that if you look at Isaiah chapter 53, which we tend to read at Christmas time, that's very clearly talking about the Messiah. But then there are other passages where they are a little bit more cloaked. They make sense in hindsight. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about uh, um, Zechariah, for example, and Zephaniah and some of those prophecies, which only after the fact, the uh, gospel writer Matthew, in hindsight, says, well, these were talking about the Messiah. And so maybe, if nothing else, it explains why Jews, even confronted with what I think is pretty clear evidence of Messianic prophecy, a couple of weeks ago, I shared about the fact that when I was working with somebody at the American Family Radio, who is one of the on-air hosts, he said that the thing, even though he's not Jewish, but just as a Gentile, that convinced him that the Bible must be true, were all these messianic prophecies written down in the Old Testament, literally fulfilled in one person, Jesus Christ. But sometimes you can see why maybe Jews say, well, that doesn't, I don't think that was a messianic prophecy. We can still point to a lot of them that are, that were fulfilled in Jesus. But then, of course, he he takes us through the Daniel prophecy, which in the gospel and the writings of Daniel, he said, when should we look for the Messiah? Well, from the issuing of a decree to rebuild the wall and to rebuild the temple, 
uh, you will have 69 sevens of years, or it turns out to be 173,880 days. And we know when that takes place because it's written not only in the book of Nehemiah, but we also have secular independent history that shows us when that came and when that particular um, decree was issued. You now count 173,880 days and you end up with... Palm Sunday. And so, again, there are some really good prophetic arguments for that as well. And so even before Jesus came onto the scene, you can see that there were cultural views, there was a spiritual fuse, and there was a prophetic fuse. But it also helps answer another question. And that is the divine timing. And this is what J. Warner Wallace calls the red zone. If you look at some of the things we've just talked about in terms of culture and spiritual and all the rest, if you just looked at the spiritual red zone, it sort of narrows it down, saying if you were looking for a key event, it probably would have happened between about 350 BCE and 250 CE. But if you add the spiritual event onto the cultural event, that narrows it down even further to 29 BCE to 180 CE. By the time you get the prophecy one, it gets down to just a few years before, um, of course, when we changed our calendar to 70 CE. And so in this very tiny red zone, something you would think would have happened. What was that explosion? Was it a political event? Was it an edict of government? Was it an act of war? What is a catastrophe? No, it's the birth and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's a kind of an interesting argument in that regard. But if nothing else, then he moves from there to this very small window as you move all these together. By the way, this takes pages, so I'm going through this very quickly. And if Jay Warner Walls were sitting there right now, he said, you left out, you left out. Yes, I left a lot of out because we're all going to go to lunch here in just a few minutes. But nevertheless, you can see how small a window that is. And even just apart from the Bible, there were a lot of things that seemed to be building for what we will now see as that culmination in the red zone. Okay, so that's the fuse. Now we recognize that then you have the fallout. And I'll go through these fairly quickly as well. The first is the, what he calls the dissemination fallout. And that is, look at the, and I'll show you some pictures in just a minute, of all the Christians who, or actually individuals who became Christians, who, as he said, liked Jesus. Because we have this growing band of individuals. You think about this. One of the great questions that was raised, even in the book of Acts, is, is this developing cult called Christianity, is this going to continue and, of course, the great uh, rabbi at the time said, well, if it is of God, it will continue. And, of course, you have this incredible uh, mass of individuals of the church fathers. You know, Irenaeus, Eusebius, Origen. I mean, the list is very, very long of those. And so you see all these Christians, ultimately, who liked Jesus. Then he takes you through all the non-Christians that do, and these would be all the historians. Tacitus, Suetonius, this would be the later historians uh, uh, that uh, were in Constantinople and uh, in Alexandria and other places. And you get this, this growing body of individuals that all refer back to Jesus. 
during the program, he spends some time then trying to answer a couple of the objections. One of the objections you get from the non-Christian, and even from him when he was a skeptic, was, well, the story of Jesus changed over time. Except you've got a problem with that. We have manuscripts that take us back to the first century. So this argument that the story of Jesus changed over time, which has been an argument that Muslims have used. Muslims will oftentimes say, well, I don't trust the Bible because the Bible's changed and the Bible was manipulated. And first of all, that's hard to say because when uh, even he was talking about the Bible that existed at that time, if you will, in the 7th century, we can now do a comparison to the manuscripts we have in the 1st century and say that there was no change. So that kind of eliminates that possibility. Another objection is, well, there were probably different stories about Jesus and the early Christians eliminated the competing accounts of Jesus. No, because we have, again, documentation to show that that's the case. And if nothing else, we see that the dissemination of the story of Jesus is amazing because he dominates the bookshelves. Here's, for example, just uh, some of the diagrams. Alexander, Origen, Hippolytus, Clement, Irenaeus, Dionysus, uh, and it just goes all the way down. Polycarp, Ignatius, uh, just the individuals who are writing about Jesus and writing about Christianity. Not to mention all the way the back, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We don't want to forget them either, uh, but that shows you that. And when you start talking about the evidence of the bookshelves as well, you know, we you can see, of course, the impact uh, from, uh, for example, Martin Luther, Thomas Aquinas, uh, William of Ockham, all the way over here to uh, John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, C.S. Lewis, you know, the, all the way down the individuals that have written about that. More books have been written about Jesus, more films have been done about Jesus, more architecture has been based upon Jesus than anything, and that gets us into that idea, not only of dissemination, but also inspiration. One of the things he does is he has a diagram of what was very typical of a a Jewish home, a Jewish synagogue, even the early Christian churches. But over time, the inspiration of Jesus led to incredible architecture. Here's just one of his diagrams here, reminding you that this was put together by Michelangelo of the Dome. Uh, first of all, not only just an incredible structural um, edifice that was put together, but also incredibly beautiful as well. And all of Western architecture of our paintings, uh, even evidence of belief in Jews just in our hymnals, Western music, all follows back to, again, the inspiration that Jesus had for uh, the Western culture. And here are just a few of the paintings here. Of course, you have the Last Supper and the Crucifixion and the Wedding Feast in Cana and all of that that we gain today as a result of the incredible impact of Jesus. This is also another powerful argument. More than once when I used to speak on college campuses, I would have some students say, why should I pay attention to Jesus? I said, well, because he, first of all, made a claim that no one else made, and that is that he was God. 
Now, you have some people like Buddha saying, I'm a way shower to God, but he says, no, I am God, right? He makes those claims to deity. He also said he was the only way to God because in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But okay, let's reject the Bible for just a minute, which is obviously what you're trying to do. Who has had the greatest influence in Western culture? You know, seriously. I mean, we, uh, I think a well-educated person would have to say, I've got to make my peace with this person, Jesus Christ. Because most of the music, most of the art, most of the architecture is hearkening back to the seminal event of the birth and life, death and belief in the resurrection of Jesus. And so you have to... You know, and, and sometimes I have people say, well, why should I study the Bible? I said, well, because, you know, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, uh, the Bhagavad Gita, even the Quran don't make the claims that the Bible makes. The Bible makes the claim that it's what? Revelation from God. And so it's a, I kind of think it's a powerful argument because today we run into a lot of people say, well, I'm not against Christianity. I just don't see any reason why I should check it out. Well, then how would you understand Shakespeare? Without the Bible? How would you understand most of Western culture without the Bible? How would you understand all of these paintings without the Bible? How would you understand it without Jesus Christ? And I think it's a good conversation starter sometimes when you're talking about this. Here, even into the modern era, you might say, well, yeah, that was back in the Renaissance. Well, even in the modern era, look at all the films, look at all the paintings, look at the impact that Jesus. Here's an individual that was born um, actually in Bethlehem, lived in Nazareth, never traveled more than, I guess most people say, more than 100 miles once he was a child from his home. Um, never actually was able to uh, speak in any situation apart from Judea. And yet here has had the most profound impact of anyone in all of culture and all of history. And so it's a pretty good argument to at least get people to be a little bit interested and to want to check it out. G. Warner Wallace points out that when he was trying to uh, prove to his wife this is uh, an actual error, um, he seriously thought about stealing a Gideon Bible. But then concluded, maybe I should at least go buy a cheap one at a used bookstore. But again, you can see uh, the possible fallout as well. Here's another fallout. And this would be the education fallout. Igniting a revolution in education. Again, this goes through and reminds us that most of the major universities in Europe and around the Western world were founded ultimately on a Christian idea. That there were chairs for law and theology, philosophy, medicine, music uh, that existed. But even going to even the Catholic side, almost every monastery had a library. Most every school had both a monastery and a cathedral, and even the whole emphasis on modern education was indeed uh, created in large part simply because of the influence of Jesus Christ. Here's one for our scientists in the room, and that is what you might call the exploration fallout. He deals with the objection. Well, Christianity is anti-science. Matter of fact, there's a very good book that came out a couple of years ago by David Kinneman. It's called Ex-Christians. And they asked a number of people that had grown up in the church why they are no longer going to church, why they've rejected the gospel. And one of the principal arguments was because I believe that the Bible is anti-science. 
or that I believed in science and I believed in the Bible, but I was told by my professor, either you believe in the Bible or science, so I rejected the Bible and accepted science. Now, for all of us in the room, if you've been to the Institute for Creation Research, you can see that really, uh, they have, when you first walk in, it's amazing. You look at these paintings, and all of a sudden the paintings move. Everybody know what we're talking about? We've done a couple of uh, trips there. And, of course, you have that in many places as well. But if you think about this, there are some excellent books that have been written over the years about the fact that Christianity was the very catalyst for science in the first place. Why did we have a scientific method? Because... The scientists at that time believed that there was a creator God and he was intelligent and intelligent individuals could use the scientific method to discover the world around them. So almost all of the great founders of the various scientific disciplines were actually indeed theists, most of which were Christians. And on the radio show we talked about the other day, he says the father of almost every scientific discipline. He's got a list that would just wear you out. But he also said, well, there are few of them are women. So not only the fathers, but in some ways the mothers of each scientific discipline are all a result of that. And here just gives you a few examples. The father of accounting and uh, bookkeeping, the father of anthropology, the father of paleontology, the father of anthropology, the father of meteorology, the father of that or a variety of others. And so you see that when you start looking at that, again, the remarkable history that today we have people saying, well, I believe in science. I don't believe in the Bible. Well, most of the founders of science were individuals who were, in many cases, Christians. And even if they weren't Christians, they were at least theists and believed in God. And so, again, just some powerful arguments for that as well. Okay, I'm going to keep it moving. But another one is what you could call the exaltation fallout. Now, this is a little harder to get our handle on, so I won't spend too much time. But remember how I talked about the fact that you have some particular deities and people have said, well, Jesus is just a collection of all those. What they point out is, is that after Jesus came, a lot of people changed their stories about the deities. They either mentioned Jesus or they merged some of the ideas with Jesus or modified them. And so he takes you through some sections on how Jesus is mentioned and then kind of merged into Hinduism. Because you have this idea of Krishna. You know, Krishna is kind of like a Christ figure in Hinduism. And then you can see how most likely when the first apostle Thomas made his way into India... Uh, that as they heard about that, they sort of made the, one of their deities, Krishna, into like Christ, so that they could just say, well, we have a belief in all these deities, we'll just add Jesus as one more deity on the shelf. Okay, you also have the modification of Mithras, you have Buddhism mentioning and merging this, and you even have, of course, Jesus, of course, is seen in the Quran. And so you see that even the impact of when these other religions, either that already existed, like Hinduism, Buddhism, or later were created, which would be like Islam, when they came onto the world, they had to make their peace with who Jesus was. So again, another example of the fallout. And so again, here's just one of the diagrams, just showing a little bit of here you have Jesus and uh, he shows up in Hinduism and uh, Krishna and Mithras and Buddhism and all the rest because, again, so profound that even the religions of the world had to, in one way, either modify their story, merge Jesus with it, mention it, or in some way deal with this.
which I think are all just very powerful arguments for when you're talking to somebody who says, look, I don't really have that much interest in reading the Bible. I really don't have that much interest in Jesus Christ. Why would I even want to know about who Jesus Christ is? He lived a long time ago. You could simply say, I think a well-educated person would want to know a little bit more. And if you have any level of intellectual curiosity, you're going to see first the fuse, the explosion, and then this incredible fallout that has taken place as well. So again, just as I summarize it, the fuse was really just a couple of things. You have a cultural trend, a spiritual trend, and a prophetic trend. And then you see the incredible dissemination of the gospel around the world. We see how it was so influential in imagination. And even to this day, uh, even the architecture in this room is a testimony to some of that. Uh, in terms of education, all the major universities in the United States were founded ultimately to educate individuals in the gospel. And the first uh, admittedly secular institutions was Johns Hopkins University, after more than a 100 universities were established to teach uh, the gospel or to, in one way, educate people about religion. Then in terms of exploration, you know, how uh, we today owe a debt of gratitude to everything from science and the scientific method. And then, of course, the whole idea of exaltation in terms of these various religions that found themselves having to make some kind of modification or inclusion because the profound impact that Jesus had in the culture. Well, if nothing else, I hope that the book would be an encouragement to you to maybe learn a little bit more about culture and to see that those may be some other very profound arguments as you begin to try to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. Of course, we start with our own testimony. We share, of course, what the Bible has to say. But if nothing else today, I just wanted to give you one more tool, maybe to put in your evangelism toolbox, in your apologetics toolbox, and think about how you might use uh, that background. I mean, some of you have abilities in art. Some of you have abilities in music. Some of you have abilities in writing. You can use some of the cultural issues that you're dealing with and reach out to people in your peer group. And certainly you can begin to challenge people to start taking a serious investigation of who Jesus is and what the Bible is. Because if you really want to be an educated person in the 21st century, you can't just say, well, I'm just apathetic about those issues. And this could be just a really great way to, as I say sometimes, put a rock in their shoe after you share all this. So they're going to become a Christian? Well, sometimes they do. Most of the time they just start walking around like this and they start thinking about this. And that's what happened to Jay Warner Wallace. That's what happened to Lee Strobel. That's what happened to Josh McDowell. By the way, Josh McDowell is going to be on the program with me tomorrow. Um, also, we um, have uh, Dallas Jenkins interview on Tuesday. And then we also have another one on Wednesday that I think you're going to enjoy. That's uh, Danny Yamashiro. Uh, you might not know who he is, but he's kind of considered the Billy Graham of Hawaii. Just an incredible uh, individual that's been a great evangelist. So it's been a good weekend. And by the way, if you turn in Thursday, that's our Millennial Roundtable. And Jonathan Teague will be on the program. So those are just a couple of things coming up. But this is what caused people like Josh McDowell and Lee Strobel and Jay Warner Wallace to start investigating. And once they investigated, they became Christians. And all of that's in a book, which uh, is not out yet, but I've already pre-ordered mine because I've got just kind of the rough copy. And if you would like to know a little bit more, I'm sure you can find it out on the website. And um, nothing else. I wanted to equip you today to make a difference for Jesus Christ.